This episode of the Windows Into the Bible podcast is brought to you by Windows Into the Bible University, the best way for you to continue studying and learning about the words of the Bible through the world of the Bible. With affordable monthly and annual membership plans, in addition to some incredible free courses and materials, Windows Into the Bible University is a resource like nothing that's out there. Courses are available online, on demand, with video and audio lessons, so there's no such thing as falling behind. You decide the pace you learn at, and we provide you with everything you need to study your Bible like never before. Some of our most popular courses include What is the Bible? Windows into the Bible, the theology of Jesus, and much more. These courses are expert-led with college-level learning and materials at a fraction of the college cost. We guarantee you'll never look at the Bible the same again. Enroll today at WITBUniversity.com. That's WITBUniversity.com. Listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. Reading the Bible with understanding requires reading the words of the Bible within the world of the Bible. This podcast engages the spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual world of the Bible to help transform how you read and understand the Bible. Have questions or want to interact with Mark? Tweet us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. For more insights, information about the podcast, and bonus resources and notes for each episode, visit WITBpodcast.com. Now, let's get into today's episode. Now this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham when he defeated the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of all that he had. His name in the first place means king of righteousness, then king of Salem, which means king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, and has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Thus the author of the Epistle to Hebrews described the biblical figure of Melchizedek, the priest-king of Salem. In his attempt to discover something about Melchizedek, which will play into his argument for Jesus' priesthood, the author of Hebrews extracts details about this figure who met Abraham in Genesis 14. His enigmatic appearance only twice within the Hebrew Bible Old Testament further encouraged ancient Jewish speculation as to who he was and his origins. But how do we get from a meeting between Abraham and Melchizedek in Genesis 14 to the statement, quote, he has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Hi, I'm Mark. Do you ever feel confused when you read the Bible? Do you feel like you're missing things the author intended for you to understand? Would you like to gain clarity and confidence in reading the Bible? 
Welcome to the Windows into the Bible podcast, where we use the world of the Bible to help you understand the words of the Bible. Melchizedek only appears twice within the Hebrew Bible Old Testament. His brief appearance invited ancient Jewish interpreters to try and discover more about him from the biblical text. In fact, he appears so briefly that we will quote the two occurrences where he appears in total. The first in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20, quote, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed is Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed is God Most High, who delivers your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all that he had. The second passage is Psalm 110. In this psalm, two figures are mentioned, Yahweh and one who is designated as my Lord. The psalm reads, Yahweh declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I place your enemies as a footstool for your feet. The rod of your strength, Yahweh sends from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer in the day of your force, in the majesty of your holiness. From the womb of dawn, like dew, I have begotten you. Yahweh is sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. My Lord is at your right hand. He smashes kings in the day of his anger. He will judge among the nations, filling them with corpses. He smashes heads upon the wide earth. From the stream in the way, he will drink. Therefore, he will raise his head. The verses in Genesis occur within the context of Abraham rescuing Lot, who had been captured as part of a great war. On their return, Abraham encountered Melchizedek. Yet these verses interrupt a meeting between Abraham and the king of Sodom, which begins in verse 17 and picks up again in verse 21 after Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek. This strange intrusion intrigued ancient Jewish interpreters. Who was this Melchizedek? Where did he come from? How did he come to be priest of God Most High? Where was Salem that he ruled? What was the meaning or the lesson of this story which intrudes into the narrative of Genesis? Moreover, who gave what to whom? Let's start with that last question. Who gave what to whom? Now, anyone who has read the epistle to the Hebrews knows that the author makes a point that Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth, a tithe of all his war spoils. So, it seems pretty self-evident that that's what happened. But let's read the text carefully. After Melchizedek brought out bread and wine, it says, and he blessed him. It is clear from the context of the blessing that follows that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Also, since Melchizedek was the last proper noun mentioned prior to the statement, and he blessed him, he should be identified as the subject of that sentence. The sentence that follows Melchizedek's blessing states, quote, And he gave to him a tenth of everything. Who is the subject and who is the object of that sentence? 
Some may say based upon Hebrews that Abraham is obviously the subject who gave the tithe to Melchizedek, the object. And in fact, some modern Bible translations remove the ambiguity in the Hebrew text of Genesis by supplying the proper nouns, and Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. But that's not what the text says. Moreover, we should understand that the author of Hebrews, like other Jewish interpreters who read this verse as Abraham giving the tithe to Melchizedek, were interpreting the Genesis passage, which is ambiguous as to who gave whom the tithe. In fact, with Melchizedek being the subject of the preceding verses, it's very likely that he paid the tithe to Abraham. Yet ancient Jewish interpreters, like the author of Hebrews, viewed the situation from their perspective. And for them, tithes were given to priests. So Abraham had to give the tithe to Melchizedek. The Genesis Apocryphon, which was discovered among the Dead Sea Scrolls, relates the biblical story in this manner. Quote, And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out food and drink to Abraham and all of his men who were with him. And he was a priest to God Most High. And he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed is Abraham to God Most High, Master of heaven and earth. And blessed is God Most High, who has given over your enemies into your hand. And he and we'll talk about this in a moment, it means Abram, or Abraham, gave him a tenth from all of his possessions of the king of Elam and his confederates. Now, the author of the Genesis Apocryphon followed the ambiguous language of Genesis, and he gave him. But with the addition of the source of the tithe, the possessions of the king of Elam, he clearly indicates that he viewed Abram as paying the tithe to Melchizedek. The first century Jewish historian Josephus also identified Abraham as the one who paid the tithe to Melchizedek. Quote, now this Melchizedek hospitably entertained Abram's army, providing abundantly for all their needs. And in the course of the feast, he began to extol Abraham and bless God for having delivered his enemies into his hand. Abraham then offered him a tithe of the spoils and he accepted the gift. And as mentioned before, Hebrews also has Abraham pay the tithe to Melchizedek. Quote, See how great he is. Abraham the patriarch gave him a tithe of the spoils. Ancient interpreters also sought to tease out information about Melchizedek based upon his name and titles. Melchizedek, they took to mean king of righteousness or king of justice in Hebrew, king of Salem and priest of God most high. His name suggested that he was a just and righteous king. Josephus says, quote, Jerusalem's first founder was a leader of the Canaanites called in his native tongue, righteous king, for so indeed he was. The passage quoted from Hebrew at the beginning of our podcast follows a similar line of interpretation. He is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. The Jewish writer of the first century, Philo of Alexandria, likewise followed this interpretation, saying, quote, For he, Melchizedek, is entitled the Righteous King. So too his title as King of Salem encouraged allegorical interpretation as well as attempts to identify the location of Salem. Several ancient Jewish interpreters played upon the similarity between the name Salem 
and the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. Philo of Alexandria writes, Melchizedek too has God made both king of peace, for that is the meeting of Salem and his own priest. The author of Hebrews interprets his title king of Salem in a similar manner, saying, quote, he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. This tradition also appears within the writings of the church father, Clement of Alexandria. Quote, Salem means specifically peace, of which our Savior is said to be king, for concerning him does Moses say, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high. He offers him bread and wine, holy food, as a prefiguring of the Eucharist. It is true that the name Melchizedek means just king, but justice and peace are synonymous. Ancient Jewish interpreters also ask, where was Salem? The text of Genesis did not specify its location. Two traditions emerged among ancient Jewish interpreters as to the location of Melchizedek's Salem. One identified Salem with Jerusalem. The other placed it in Samaria. Let's look at both. Josephus identified Salem with Jerusalem, saying, quote, For this reason, he was the first to serve as priest before God, and having been the first to build the temple, gave the city previously called Salem the name Jerusalem. Now, Josephus is also working off the Greek name of Jerusalem, which is Erosolima, and he understands this to mean holy Salem. The Aramaic Targums, Onkelos and Neophyte, likewise identified Melchizedek as king of Jerusalem, quote, and Melchizedek, king of Jerusalem, was a priest serving in the high priesthood before God Most High. The Genesis Apocryphon that we mentioned before also identified Salem as Jerusalem, quote, and the king of Sodom heard that Abram had given back all the captives and all the booty, and he went up to meet him, and he came to Salem, which is Jerusalem. The rabbinic Midrash, Midrash Hagadol, identified Salem also with Jerusalem. Quote, The Jerusalem temple was built in his, Melchizedek's, domain. As it says, quote, And Melchizedek, king of Salem. And Salem means Jerusalem. As it says, his, referring to God, Abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion, quoting Psalm 78.3. So in this instance, the rabbis are using the psalm to help them identify where Salem was, meaning Salem is parallel in the psalm to the dwelling place in Zion. Yet some traditions place Salem in Samaria, the hill country north of Jerusalem. Pseudo-Epolomius wrote, He, meaning Abraham, was accepted as a guest by the city at the temple of Argarazim, that is Mount Gerizim, which means mountain of the Most High. He also received gifts from Melchizedek, who was a priest of God and king as well. Not only does the tradition identify Salem with Mount Gerizim, which is in Samaria, but it read the biblical text of Genesis as Melchizedek giving gifts to Abram. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint, interprets Genesis 33:18 as, quote, And Jacob came to Salem, 
the city of Shechem's. The early 2nd century B.C. work, the Book of Jubilees, also placed Salem near Shechem, which is in Samaria. Quote, And Jacob went up to Salem, to the east of Shechem, in peace. Notice that the author here, too, plays on the name Salem is tied to peace. The book of Judith, also written in the 2nd century B.C., placed Salem in the region of Samaria. Quote, So they sent every district of Samaria, and to Kona, and Beit Horon, and Hova, and Esora, and the valley of Salem, and immediately seized the high hilltops. Thus, ancient interpreters sought to discover information about Melchizedek in his encounter with Abraham by teasing out the details within the biblical account. But, as quickly as he appears in the Bible, he disappears, only mentioned in one other place, and this added to his enigmatic person. Psalm 110 seems to have been a royal enthronement psalm. I have to say seems because the language of the psalm is very obscure in Hebrew. Its obscurity was further compounded by the tradition of reading the psalm adopted and put forth by the Masoretes. These were Jewish scribes who vocalized the Hebrew text in the 9th and 10th centuries AD. Their vocalization of the text was itself an act of interpretation. Remember, the Hebrew Bible was originally written without vowels or punctuation. The act of reading, which supplied the vowels to the consonantal text, as well as punctuation, was in itself an act of interpretation. If you're enjoying the Windows into the Bible podcast, I want to tell you quickly about another great and affordable resource that we offer to help deepen your study and understanding of the Bible. The Windows into the Bible book club and Bible study is a virtual on-demand book club and Bible study like no other. Each month, the book club and Bible study reads a book chosen specifically to enhance your understanding of the world of the Bible. And that book is paired with a digital Bible study. It's all recorded and saved so that you can make progress no matter when you begin. For just $10 a month, every member of the book club and Bible study receives a Bible study, notes and videos delivered to your inbox three times a week a members-only Facebook group for discussion and more resources, two live virtual discussions with the book club each month led by that month's expert or author. All materials are available on demand so you can read and learn at your own pace. This is just the low-stress, no-fuss Bible study and book club that you've been looking for. It's designed to deepen your study and understanding of the Bible for just $10 a month. Go to WITBUniversity.com to join today. That's WITBUniversity.com. See you there. The way the Masoretes vocalized Psalm 110 further obscured the passage 
and they likely did this due to the psalm's importance among Christians and their reading of it in connection with Jesus. Nevertheless, the psalm appears to be a royal enthronement psalm, building upon the themes within the ancient Near East where the king had divine, heavenly, and even priestly aspects to his role. We see this as well in passages like 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2. The psalm expresses the enthronement and the divine appointment of the monarch. Within this psalm, we find the only other mention of Melchizedek. It's in verse 4. Yahweh has sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Why would such a psalm mention Melchizedek? Who was this guy? Moreover, the Hebrew of verse 4 is ambiguous. Is the psalm addressed to someone other than Melchizedek, or is it addressed to Melchizedek himself? This leads us into another aspect of interpretations regarding Melchizedek within ancient Judaism. These traditions pivoted more around his appearance in Psalm 110. Two traditions of reading Psalm 110.4 developed within ancient Judaism. One, like we find in Hebrews, viewed the psalm as addressed to one, quote, after the order of Melchizedek. Speaking about Jesus, Hebrews says, quote, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2.7. We'll come back to that in a minute. As it also says elsewhere, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews goes on to build its argument about Jesus' high priesthood based upon reading Psalm 110.4 in this manner. Yet Hebrews also knew a tradition where this verse was addressed to Melchizedek, the priest-king of Genesis himself. He is without father or mother or genealogy and has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Melchizedek's abrupt appearance and disappearance in the Bible led the author of Hebrews to describe him without genealogy, without beginning or end of life, thus, quote, resembling the Son of God. He continues as a priest forever. Here he reflects a tradition in which Psalm 110.4 addressed Melchizedek, not someone else. To arrive at this reading, which is possible, by the way, one would read the Hebrew of Psalm 110.4 in this manner, quote, Yahweh has sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever by my word, O Melchizedek. This reading would understand the verse directed to Melchizedek, who was appointed to an eternal priesthood by God's word. What does the author mean, though, quote, resembling the Son of God? This derives from a reading of Psalm 110.3. As the text of Psalm 110.3 stands currently within the Masoretic tradition, it is nonsensical. Yet a Hebrew phrase appears in Psalm 110, verse 3, that only appears in one other place within the Hebrew Bible, and that is Psalm 2, 7. The Hebrew phrase means, I, God, have begotten you. We previously quoted the passage from Hebrews where the author sowed Psalm 2, 7 with Psalm 110. 
He did this because of the appearance of the same phrase, I have begotten you, in both passages. Incidentally, this is probably how the Hebrew of Psalm 110.3 should be read, but I don't want to get into the technical aspects of Hebrew right now. Note, however, that the Septuagint reads Psalm 110.3 in this manner, I have begotten you. Reading Psalm 110.4 as addressed to Melchizedek also made him the subject of verse 3. He is the one begotten by God. In this way, he resembles the Son of God and continues as a priest forever. Moreover, and we'll come to this quickly, reading these verses as addressed to Melchizedek makes him the subject, the figure identified as my Lord within the psalm. The book of 2 Enoch records an apocryphal account of the birth of Melchizedek to Nir, the brother of Noah, and his wife, Saphonim. In this story, Saphonim is found to be with child by the word of God, which plays off the reading of Psalm 110.4, by my word, O Melchizedek. When Nir finds out that she is pregnant, he rebukes her and she falls dead at his feet. The angel Gabriel appears, telling Nir that the child Melchizedek is a righteous fruit who will be taken to heaven. The child was born from his mother after her death, and Noah and Nir found him blessing God. So they washed and dressed him in the garments of the priesthood, giving him holy bread. They named him Melchizedek, and then Gabriel takes Melchizedek to the paradise of Eden so that he can avoid and survive the flood. He then reveals to Nir in a dream, quote, And Melchizedek will be my priest to all priests, and I will sanctify him. When Nero awakes from his dream, he blesses God, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my fathers, because by his word he has created a great priest in the womb of Saphonim, my wife. His words derive from a reading of Psalm 110.4 as addressed to Melchizedek, and moreover, understanding that God's word created Melchizedek. The text goes on to talk about Melchizedek being, quote, the head of the priests in another generation. In other words, he continues as a high priest forever. If one understood Psalm 110.4 as addressed to Melchizedek, then it stands to reason that the entire psalm addressed Melchizedek. He would be the figure identified as my Lord in verse 1, Yahweh declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I place your enemies as a footstool for your feet. His place and posture, seated alongside Yahweh, suggests an elevated role and a position of a judge. Moreover, reading the continuation of the psalm in verses 5 and 6, this figure's role was not simply to be a passive seated judge, Rather, he would execute judgment against the nations. Quote, My Lord is at your right hand. He smashes kings in the day of his anger. He will judge among the nations, filling them with corpses. He smashes heads upon the wide earth. Now, some of you may be following along with your Bibles, and you will note that the way we translated verse 5 differs significantly from most translations. Most translations follow the Masoretic traditions. Remember those 9th and 10th century scribes that read the word at the beginning of verse 5 as referring to Yahweh, God. But 
and this is a big but. That is not what is written in the Hebrew of the psalm. The Hebrew text does not use the divine name. Rather, it has the consonants for the phrase, my Lord, like in verse 1. Moreover, if in verse 1, my Lord is seated at Yahweh's right hand, then Yahweh is to the left of my Lord. In order for verse 5 to refer to Yahweh, he would have to move spots between verses 1 and 5, because verse 5 reads, my Lord is at your right hand. Thus again, we see the Masoretes changing the reading by changing the vowels to lessen the potential theological impact of the arguments of their opponents. If Psalm 110.4 is read as addressing Melchizedek, who is thus given an eternal priesthood, then the my Lord in verses 1 and 5 also refer to him, which makes him not only an eternal priest, but a warrior judge. Such a description of Melchizedek appears among the Dead Sea Scrolls. A scroll discovered in Cave 11 at Qumran preserves a beautiful midrash upon the tenth and final jubilee, a period in which redemption would come for the sons of light designated as the lot of Melchizedek, and judgment and punishment upon Belial and those of his lot. When the scroll was initially discovered, most scholars became fixated upon the appearance of Melchizedek in the scroll, even naming the scroll 11Q Melchizedek. This fixation, however, has led to an inappropriate emphasis upon Melchizedek. Because he appears as a heavenly judge, many scholars have identified him as the angel Michael, even though nothing within the scroll suggests such an identification. Moreover, the scroll, at least the portion preserved, is not about Melchizedek, but rather it describes the anticipated events of the 10th Jubilee, which brings time to an end. The focus of the preserved manuscript is God's redemption and judgment in the 10th Jubilee. That is the focus of the text, not Melchizedek. Melchizedek appears because the author sees him as a priest serving a role within the redemption of the sons of light and the judge of Belial and the sons of darkness. The inauguration of the 10th Jubilee, as well as its conclusion on the Day of Atonement, speaks to Melchizedek's priestly role. Moreover, a careful reading of the text reveals that the author even identified him as, quote, the anointed of the Spirit, in Hebrew, Mashiach Haruach. He's a redeemer, a messianic figure who serves a role in God's redemption of his people like Moses in the Exodus story. Because neither Genesis 14 nor Psalm 110 are quoted in this text, scholars have sought the origin of Melchizedek's role as a heavenly judge elsewhere by identifying him with the archangel Michael. Yet these scholars have overlooked one important key, the mention of Melchizedek. His name alone would have reminded ancient readers of his appearance in the Bible. Furthermore, we as modern interpreters of this text should seek the origins of his depiction in the Qumran text within the biblical text before we jump to other explanations. And, as we saw previously, one could depict Melchizedek as possessing an eternal priesthood, judging from a heavenly throne, 
and executing judgment on the nations from Psalm 110 alone. No angelic appeal is necessary. The author of this text expected the priest-king of Genesis 14 to appear as the priest and judge of the end of days. Now, there's much I could say about this text from Qumran. I've spent over 25 years studying it, but I will conclude by simply reading a portion of it to you. Quote, And as it says, in this year of the Jubilee, each one will return his property. This is quoting Leviticus 25. And concerning it, it says, And this is the matter of the release. Each creditor will remit the claim that he holds against his neighbor, not exacting it from his neighbor and his kin because it has been proclaimed a remission of God. This is from Deuteronomy 15, the law of the Shemitah, which is the year of release, the sabbatical year. Its interpretation is for the end of days concerning the captives, as it is said concerning them, to proclaim liberty to the captives and whose, and then there's a break, but that was quoting from Isaiah 61, and from the inheritance of Melchizedek for, and then there's a break, and they are the inheritance of Melchizedek who will return them and proclaim to them liberty to release them of all their iniquities. And this matter will happen in the first week of the Jubilee after the nine Jubilees. And the Day of Atonement is the end of the Tenth Jubilee to make atonement for all the sons of light and the men of the lot of Melchizedek. And about them, according to all of their doings, for it is the period of the year of the favor of Melchizedek and his hosts with the holy ones of God, of the dominion of justice as it is written about it in the Songs of David, which says, The judge stands in the congregation of God in the midst of judges he will judge. This is Psalm 82. And concerning it, it says, And above it to the heights return, God will judge the people. That's Psalm 7. And it says, How long will you judge unjustly and be partial to the wicked? Selah. That's continuation of Psalm 82. Its interpretation concerns Belial and the spirits of his lot, who, and then there's a break, when they turned away from the statutes of God to do evil. And Melchizedek will execute the vengeance of God's judgment. And on that day, he will deliver them from the hand of Belial and from the hand of all the spirits of his lot. And with the help of all the oaks of righteousness, this is an allusion to Isaiah 61 again. And this is what it says. The days of punishment have come for all the sons of God. And this punishment is the day of peace, as God says concerning it by the hand of Isaiah the prophet, who said, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger announcing peace, the messenger of good announcing salvation, saying to Zion, Your God reigns. Its interpretation, the mountains are the prophets, they, and then there's a break, the messenger is the anointed of the Spirit, as Daniel said about him, to atone for iniquity and to bring everlasting righteousness. And the messenger of good announcing salvation, this is what is written about him, which says to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort those who mourn. A parallel to Melchizedek is the heavenly warrior judge, also appears in some of the Gnostic works found in the library of Nagamati. There, too, the priest-king of Genesis 14 appears as a heavenly warrior. So we've tracked how the biblical priest-king of Genesis becomes an eternal priest, 
with neither beginning of days nor end of life in Hebrews. It grows out of ancient Jewish interpretation based upon the biblical appearances of Melchizedek. Studying ancient Jewish interpretations doesn't help us identify or understand who Melchizedek was in the Hebrew Bible Old Testament. That's a separate question or sets of questions. However, it does offer a window into how ancient Jews worked with biblical texts, how they teased its language to find details, especially about enigmatic figures like Melchizedek or Enoch. For readers of the New Testament, it also provides a window into how we should understand the use of the Hebrew Bible Old Testament within the New Testament. How New Testament writers who belong to the interpretive world of ancient Judaism worked with biblical text. And when we peer through that window, we see into the religious world of ancient Judaism, the faith of the New Testament more clearly. I'm Mark Turnage, and this is the Windows into the Bible podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the WITB podcast. You can comment and send us questions, which we will answer on a future episode. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Mark, M-A-R-C, Turnage, T-U-R-N-A-G-E. See you next time. We hope you're enjoying the Windows into the Bible podcast. If you are, help us out by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the show. This helps the show get seen and heard by even more people looking to learn about the world of the Bible. And by subscribing, you make sure new episodes to the podcast show up in your feed as soon as they go live. Give us a rating, a review, and subscribe. And most of all, keep listening. It's Mark. One of the reasons I wanted to start the Windows into the Bible podcast was to show how, by accessing the world of the Bible, we can better understand the words of the Bible. This philosophy has been at the core of my entire career because I know from firsthand experience how knowing the world of the Bible completely transforms your understanding and study of the Bible. But nothing, not even a podcast, transforms how you read the Bible like actually going to the land of the Bible in person to experience it for yourself. Offering the finest on-site expert-led trips and experiences to the world of the Bible, Biblical Expeditions has taken thousands of Bible readers and travelers from around the world to the lands of the Bible with trips to Israel, Turkey, Greece, Jordan, Italy, and Egypt. If you are a church leader and are interested in organizing a trip for your church or interested in joining a group to the lands of the Bible, reach out and the Biblical Expeditions team can make that happen. Go to biblical-expeditions.com to learn more about Biblical Expeditions and upcoming trips and learn how you can finally transform your study of the Bible by actually going to the land of the Bible on a life-changing trip. 
That's biblical-expeditions.com. We use the world of the Bible to transform how you read the words of the Bible. been listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. If you have questions related to this episode, tweet them to us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. You can also find resources related to this and other episodes at WITBpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.